0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on iTunes.Villanova.edu. And usually what RPR means is a three-dimensional textile Picture, okay, but it's taken on sort of this um, political meaning, and in particular, it refers to these fabric textile things, which are much cruder than this. This is what I got from Peru, and I'm totally in love with these. But originally, they were used to um, connote (coughs) the RPRs that were produced in the 70s under General Pinochet in Chile, and I'll give you some sense of of what that was like in a minute, okay, so. do any of you know about our peers before I start? Because I don't know that much. So I was like, if I'm talking to experts, I'm in huge trouble. Okay, so how did I get involved with them in the first place? Okay, first of all, I love crafts. I love to sew, I love to knit. I love crafts and I'm also like really into women in terms of economic development. My master's is in international relations and so I really feel that women have a big role to play in economic development and from there, I sort of got interested in how women are get involved in protest and in, in political revolutions and, and social movements. So I was over at St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in Cladman several years ago. And they uh, they have like this Azalea Day. It's like their spring fair. And they had these. And I was just entranced. I thought they were the cutest things ever. OK, and so then I started. Finding out more about them from the people who were selling them, and then I just really got involved. So these particular R Pierre, okay, were marketed by a sister, Barbara Servenka, and she's an Adrian Dominican sister, artist and associate professor of art at Siena Heights University in Michigan. Okay. And in 1989 she actually went to the it's basically <coughs> a slum, it's a shanty town outside of Lima called Pamplona Alta. And that's where these are from. And she met some of the women that were doing this. Her order has a, a you know a, a venue in Pamplona Alta and works with the women. And she began to sell their work on a very informal basis. It was really hard to get the work out, it was hard to get the money back in. But she started taking them to churches and parish fairs and you know, just libraries, that kind of thing. And she also started Um, a traveling exhibition, which is called, now I'm gonna murder the, oh no, I won't yet. Cuadros of Pamplona Alta, textile pictures by women of Peru. And it's been shown all over the United States. It's been at the (coughs) museum in Chicago. It's been at the textile and art museum in Toronto. So it's been around, I tried to get it for the gallery. Because I thought it'd be so cool to have like a whole room full of these things, okay. And then what happens is there's a group called Fundades, which takes the money, it's actually, a, a Organization for disabled kids, but they take it and then they distribute the money that comes in to the rest of the um, the women's groups that do it. Okay, so that's that's how I got involved. in that. Okay, now I want to talk a little bit about women and protest right? because women go way back. And one of the earliest times um, was back in 216 BC. I'll be really brief on the history, but it is. Really and there was something called the Oppian Law, O-P-P-I-A-N Law. So what happens is Rome is fine, fighting Hannibal and Carthage. If you've had history, like this. but And they're doing really badly, and a lot of men are killed, and there's a lot of widows and daughters coming into money because <coughs> men have died. So the Roman government decides, well, wait a minute, we need their money. So they passed the Oppian Law, which meant that women, had all their money became controlled by the state, all right. it wasn't theirs anymore. And then there were a couple other provisions like they couldn't wear purple because that was a wealthy color and it was also the color of widows and we didn't want to play out how many widows there were because that meant Rome was losing, not a good thing, you know, that kind of stuff. And so fine, the women are fine with this. We're as patriotic as the next guy, you know. let's use our money to support the Roman troops. But in about 201, Rome starts to win. So by the Second Punic War, the women are doing, yeah, I mean, the, Rome is doing well, and the women notice that all the people outside in the suburbs of Rome are now able to have their money back. So they're like, hello, we would like our money back. So in 195 BC, some of the members, now we're all male, in the Roman tribunal, not the Senate, but it's sort of the governing body, decided to eliminate this law so the women could have their money back, and the women really got interested in that. Well, what happened is some of the guys in the tribunal said, We like getting all this money from the women. We like having the government control it. We're not going to repeal it. At which point, the women really, really got upset. And there is actually a historian, a contemporary historian from the time, who described the protest. <coughs> the matrons, whom neither counsel nor shame nor their husband's orders could keep at home blockaded every street and the city and every entrance to the Forum. As the men came down to the Forum, the matrons besought them to let them too have back the luxuries <laughs> that they had enjoyed before, giving us their reason that the Republic was thriving and that everyone's private wealth was increasing with every day. This crowd of women was growing daily, for now they were even gathering from the towns and villages. Before long, they dared go up and solicit consuls, praetors, and other magistrates. When the speeches for and against the law had been made, a considerably larger crowd of women poured forth in public the next day. As a single body, they besieged the doors of the tribunes who were vetoing their colleagues' motions, and they did not stop until the tribunes took back their veto. After that, there was no doubt that the law would be repealed. So clearly effective, even that far back. And then, you know, as you know, if you look at the French Revolution, if you look at the American Revolution, if you look at women's rights, you look at you know, civil rights, you look at gay rights, you look at Mothers Against truck Driving, the Million Bond March, the women who are down picketing in front of some of the gun shops in Philadelphia. You know, women have power, okay, and they use it. Now, what I want to do now is talk about the kind of origin of the RP era under Pinochet in Chile, and I just want to show you a little piece of this um, video because it kind of, I think it portrays the situation way better um, than I can report. So let me see if I can get her. Wait a second, I thought I had this, but clear not. So this is Chile Pinochet. He was a dictator, he came in, knocked out all the democratic institutions, and what they did is they arrested a
1: of how a group of women defied a dictatorship. They were armed only with scraps of cloth, sewing needles, and the overwhelming desire to find their sons, husbands, and brothers who had been arrested, tortured, and disappeared by a military junta in Chile. Two decades later, these women are still searching and the patchwork tapestries that they created out of their anguish have become a handmade chronicle of life in a dictatorship. Their quest for their missing relatives inspired women from both North America and Europe to join them in their struggle for justice and survival. And with help from the Catholic Church, they covertly sent these fabric portraits of terror around the world.
0: During the dictatorship of
1: General Augusto Pinochet, at least 2,000 people disappeared into Chile's jails, concentration camps, and torture centers, never to be seen or heard from again. And because the military refused to admit that they held them, they were called the Disappeared. Three of the women of the Disappeared are Doris Meneconi, the mother of Miguel Pizarro, who disappeared in December 1975. Violeta Morales, the leader of a sewing workshop and the sister of Newton Morales, who disappeared in August 1974. And Anelia Hermosia, a retired chambermaid and the widowed mother of Hector Tito Garay, who disappeared in July 1974. September 11, 1973, Santiago, Chile, a military junta led by Augusto Pinochet overthrows the elected government of President Salvador Allende. (coughs) As the junta declared itself in charge of the country, it closed Congress, shut down the free press, and suspended all civil liberties. In a matter of days, over 40,000 people were rounded up across Chile. A reign of terror began. Newton Morales, a 39-year-old chemical worker and union leader, was among those taken. His sister is Violeta <coughs> Morales. My brother was taken, and from his house. I
0: just want to give you an house. example of what <laughs> these women had to deal with, by three individuals
1: from Mm-hmm. Le toman del hombro y le dice: Un momentito, vamos a conversar con él y ya se lo traes.
0: So Ecto Tito Garay,
1: was a nineteen year old student, unarrested, at the time he lived at home with his mother, Emilia Emocía. A mi hijo me lo sacaron de aquí. Yo decía soy madre y tienen que decirme qué pasa con él. Me dijeron que no bajara porque iba a tener consecuencias, pero yo seguí bajando. No me importó nada. Aquí está la camioneta. Bajo yo y veo que a él lo lo echaron a la camioneta y yo vengo y me voy a tomar de aquí, de atrás de la camioneta. Me tomo de atrás de la camioneta y ellos de adentro me dan el puñeto. Y el otro que quedó ahí a la orilla del lado, me dan una patada y me caigo. Arrests were followed by brutal interrogations, torture, and in some cases, death. Bodies were found lying in the streets, floating in the Mapocho River, thrown from helicopters. Others were dumped into unmarked graves.
0: Okay, so that just, I think, gives you sort of a flavor of what it must have been like, you know, to to live in. Um, There's a woman named Marjorie Agosin who has written a whole book on this whole phenomenon or whatever. And what she writes is, these arpieris of brightly colored scraps speak of pain and also of hope. With their big round suns and the peaks of the Andes framing the background, these simple cloth pictures assembled by women, some illiterate, some from the upper levels of society, travel to the far corners of the earth because remember they're selling them. Speaking for those who have no voice, each Arpiera completed and sent outside the country is another link between the oppressed people of Chile and the free outside world. The women who make them use their pain to try to forge a just society for all. That is the message to the rest of the world from these women warriors for peace. And then she quotes one of what they call the Arpieristas, the women that do it who say that as long as they live, they will continue to sow our pierres, <coughs> to dispel oblivion, to make the dead speak, and to regenerate collective memory. Now, interestingly, you have all these women now who are widowed, they don't have, you know, they're, they're brotherless, but they also don't have any means of support, so they're in really bad shape. And the Catholic Church, bless its heart, was one of the first groups to get in there and help. And it started what's called the becaria de la Solidaridad to help these widows and mothers, primarily economically. But what happens is, as they start to sew to make money, it becomes therapeutic, and then beyond that, it becomes a way of making a political statement. So I want to talk a little bit about the use of art in protest. Um, has anybody ever been to South America? I'm just curious. Okay, I don't. probably. I don't know if you have any protests then. But if you ever see protesting of any form in South America, their props are beautiful. So their posters are amazing. I mean, you know how here, at least in the 60s, my protestant, I might have a peace sign, you know, and I would say peace, that was it. They do beautiful, colorful, they're works of art. And then they also do effigies, we don't do a lot of effigies in this country, but you know, those kind of figures. And they are beautiful, or they're Reminds you've ever seen a mummers' parade? It's that kind of caricature. So this idea of using fabric is not foreign to them. All right. There are several things that protest art can do. Okay. The first thing is framing. All right. And I'm I should you know footnote because I'm always screaming at my students not to plagiarize that I'm taking some of this from an article by a woman named Jacqueline Adams, and she says. Movements are actively engaged in the production of meaning for participants. In other words, if you're gonna get out there and try to create change, you've gotta convey the meaning of what you're trying to do. for participants, (coughs) the people that are on your side, the people that are antagonistic to you, and then also the observers, the people that are the bystander public. And so what art can do is frame or assign meaning to the relevant, and event, uh, relevant events and conditions in ways that persuade you to buy into the message. All right, so in a sense, it's sort of a marketing device. It can also show the opposition sort of where they're wrong, and it can gain the good opinion of bystander publics, okay, and hopefully demobilize the enemy in a sense, okay. So as part of the framing, the RPRs do several things. First of all, they provided information to the outside world about the conditions in Chile, because Pinochet controlled the media. You know, it's like any other press country. Very often, you know, the people in government can simply shut down whatever is going to the outside world. And when you look at these, you can really see that Pinochet is <coughs> a sort of evil. He's portrayed as evil. And this worked at both an informational level, as in, you saw those quadros, you saw Um, you know, the, the executions taking place, the police dragging the man off. A very common motif will be women dancing, and it shouldn't be women dancing, but there are no men. Or there will be something where there'll be like a Christmas dinner, and none of the men will be there. So you're sending out that information to the outside world, but you're also conveying a certain emotional ethos because they're made of very poor cloth, Okay, so that says, you know, these people are poor. Okay, they often use their own hair. I really didn't want the to with real hair, and I have to be honest, it's like a little bit weird. But, but it does say, we don't have any other way of conveying this, okay? They're crude, you saw how crude they were. Sometimes the spelling is off, uh, the, the perspective shows no art education, um, the figures can be childish, which of course says naivete and a lack of sophistication but also says, I'm really sincere. I'm really not trying to be artistic here. I'm trying to get my point across, okay? It also was useful if you were the person in another country trying to sell them because it was a good conversation piece. So if I had a store and I had those quadros, and you came in, <coughs> I could say to you, look at these. This really shows you what's happening in Chile. I can get the information you know, across to you, and it makes the suffering come alive in ways that just reading about it in the newspaper aren't going to do. Okay, it also did very definitively portray Pinocchio's evil. There's one that I don't have, but I've read about where a Pinochet is depicted as the four horses of the apocalypse. I don't know if you ever seen like one of those motifs, and the four horses are supposed to be famine, war, death, and conquest. And so if you, I've never seen the covers. I've just read, but apparently it really makes it look as if you know Pinocchio really is evil. Okay. <laughs> Our members were also air, you know, doing it, created socialization to the protest movement. Okay. So the women would sit around, and while they're doing this, they're talking. And they start talking about the political situation. They talk about what's happened, you know, to their male members of the family. They talk about their feelings, which we'll see later on is really important. And they talk about other ways to protest. Okay. And one of the quotes is, activist commitment comes from the creation of an activist identity through a progressive socialization process which involves the creation of solidarity. All right. They also were a good tool for resource um, mobilization, both in terms of money and also in terms of emotional support. People didn't buy the RPRs because they were cute. You know? These are people outside of Chile. They bought them because they wanted to support and sometimes they're called the gateway to the heart. And so by giving money, they knew the money was going back to these women. They're supporting them. They didn't necessarily think they were beautiful, but they were making a political statement of support. They also, in buying them, gave the art pieristas the resource of sort of hope. Somebody's buying my art pier, it matters. You know, I count, people (coughs) out there care about me because they are buying my work, okay? It was also a way, as I've said, of communicating sort of the, the ethos or the, you know, the, the cultural perspective of the protest movement in Chile, okay? Um, when you have an Arpiera and you look at what it's conveying, it is conveying sort of a way to think about what, how the, the movement is being you know, propelled and, and what the ideals are behind it, okay? and always portrayed in a positive light, you know, from the arpearistas point of view. The RPR also became a symbol. As I say, now when you say arpear, if you're in, even in Peru, because I was in Peru last June, when I said RPRs, they, they, there was a political connotation to it. You know, and at one point, they don't have a lot. I didn't find a lot when I was in Peru. But um, One guy said, well, do you want the political ones or the pretty ones? So they, they still are some of the political ones out there, but they are a symbol of suffering and a symbol of resistance. Okay, and if you were um, an exile from Chile and you had an Arpiera in your dining room, that meant you supported the protest movement. Um, one of the people who was interviewed, who was an exile, you know, he was, he had left Chile, said, "You saw that abroad there was not one Chilean who did not have an RPR. Everyone." I mean, it was a sort of thing to value, perhaps creativity, but also grassroots organizations at the time. A symbol, a really important symbol. And then as a symbol, it unified a lot of other groups that were also involved in protesting, because it's not just these women making these RP You know, it's librarians and academics and women running soup kitchens and students, a lot of students involved and a lot of students died, okay? So it gives this unifying theme. And then a couple other things that it did that were very practical is it was a way to bring in new recruits into the meeting because you'd see the RPR and think, okay, how can I help? What can I do? Um, It sustained the morale and the commitment of the current protesters. okay? It generated positive media coverage. It mobilized the support of bystanders and observers, particularly internationally, It also, and it's interesting because part when these started coming out, Pinochet and the military didn't pay them any attention. This was women's work. So why are we paying attention to these little guy, you know, women? It's not, they're not important. Well, what happens is they start to see that they are having an impact, but how are you going to go <coughs> and round up a whole bunch of innocent women who are sitting there sewing? That is going to look so bad, not just to the outside world, but to your own country. So what the RPRs did is sort of a symbol was to constrain the options of the opposition in terms of trying to repress them. So, And then it is sort of interesting, um, in a way, that it was the Catholic Church, which is primarily you know, a patriarchal organization, was the underpinnings, you know, the foundation, of this women's movement. Now, there is a point at which it's obvious the military do find the women as a force to be reconciled. And there's one member of the military who said, Women constitute the most efficient political weapons. They have time, they are capable of great emotion, and they mobilize growth. For instance, if you want to start a rumor that the president drinks too much, or that he has serious health problems, use women. By the next day, the rumor will be all over the country. So it's not complimentary, but doggone it, we have power. Uh, I just want to make one little comment about protest music, because that's another art form. But what you'll find is if you use art, a couple things. One is if you listen to protest songs, you usually have to listen to the lyrics. So if you aren't literate, then you may not be able to read the lyrics. So it's not as effective, but an even more important thing and why, it's interesting because protest song was really, really important in South Africa when they were protesting apartheid. But much less so here, and they think one of the reasons was that if you're a musician and you write a song, they know who you are. But if you're an RPRista and you're part of a big group, you can get that art out there, and nobody's going to know who actually did it. And you, you're not necessarily going to round up a whole group. So in that sense, you know, art can be a little more effective, the visual art like this, as opposed to music, because it can be <coughs> anonymous, all right? Now, one thing I do want to say in terms of identification is that many of the artpieris have Mine actually do. Okay, now mine pretty much say something like um, this one says something like this is the mountains of the Andes with sheep. But one of them, and I forget which of these two, has a little comment about this is what we wish we had. I'm going to get back to that. But on the original quadros, there would be um, sometimes very poignant little sayings, and the one that just absolutely hit me was one of the founders, um, Irma, of the our first Piero workshop, um, did an Piero with her son as a little boy running on the beach. And her little, in her pocket she put this message, when I find my son I will take him to the sea so he can run barefoot across the sand again. And of course they never found her son. Okay. Um, another quote is, we are here to denounce what happened to us and to put our anguish into the Arpieras so others will know. Our first motive was to use our terrible pain about our demolished lives. And then, interestingly, there is one man that I've been able to find who's actually done work on these, and he writes, it would be wrong to think that the process was easy or simple. To form any kind of organization, to get together at all in Chile after the coup was dangerous. There was not only stark fear to overcome, The junta was (coughs) spreading an ideology of consumerism and individual competitiveness even among the poor. So it's like, don't work together. Be out for yourself. And then he says, and then there was the traditional Latin slash male chauvinism. (coughs) He says, many women became involved to begin with only from dire necessity. But as the movement spread, its therapeutic function changed to one of conscious communication not only with one another, but with the world outside. Many believe that the revival of popular organizations in Chile and their first great boost at the demonstrations of 1978, which moved public opinion so much, came partly at least from the meetings of the families of the disappeared and the shanty town dwellers who met for the purpose of making our Pieras. All right, and then, Um, Another comment is, the Arpiera assumes a unique identity in Latin American history. It is a courageous piece of needlework that transfigures experiences of grief and searching into a fabric of memory, managing to engrave itself upon Chilean culture by converting female submission and reserve into nonviolent yet denunciatory weapons. So that's Chile, okay, but how do you get to those? Okay, I bought those four years ago. We're talking about Chile in, Chile in you know, 1972 to 78. So what happened was eventually Pinochet is overthrown. Okay, in 1990, he gives up the presidency, <coughs> And then you don't need that RP era as protest anymore. Okay, so people aren't gonna buy it in support of a movement that you know, just isn't happening anymore. It's, it's accomplished its mission. And the new buyers who did like just the art form did not want ugly pictures of, um, as as one guy says, I mean, people realize that if you wanna sell things, you've actually got to sell something that's bright and cheerful because people don't wanna put prison art on the wall and communities of people being shocked. So, you know, that makes sense. These women still need economic help. They still need to make money. So they start to switch to more attractive, m- much more similar to this, the kind of almost cute you know idea, non-political themes. And this is the style that gets transplanted to Pamplona Alta. Now Pamplona Alta is a slum outside of Lima, or shantytown. Slum has got kind of a different I think aura to it okay. What happens is that in the late um, 70s, the, many of the indigenous people and people that lived outside of Lima start coming to Lima because they don't have water, or they don't have social services, or they don't have schools, you know, they don't have infrastructure. So they're the first group to come. And what do they do? They build outside the city. I have this very bad picture, which I actually was going to blow up. But And there, if you look at that sort of carefully, if you're <coughs> in Lima, and you look around, you know, the hills go up around, it is like, as far as your eye can see, these kind of little, tiny buildings, like shacks, okay, that are there. So what happened is as they came, they just threw up whatever they could, okay? And then in the 80s, in, Peru, you have the advent of a lot of Marxist guerrilla groups. The most scary one was the Shining Path, and they still talk about the Shining Path today. I was like nervous they were gonna like reinvent themselves while I was there, and I was a little bit nerve wracking. Um, and so what happened was a lot of these Marxist guerrillas who were opposing the government went into villages to get food, and they would terrorize the inhabitants of the village, and then the government would send its forces in and it be, you know, the villages became battlegrounds. A lot of the men were killed, or they were, you know, taken off, and they also disappeared. There was sort of a culture of the disappeared as well in Peru. And families lost their farms because they were completely raised by the, you know, one side or the other. They lost their cattle, they lost their children, they lost their parents. So many of them came, again, we've got more people <coughs> coming into the city, many of whom, in fact, most of whom were single women. So Pamplona Alta now has about a quarter of a million people in a not very big space. The homes are made of straw mats, they're made of like corrugated tin, they're made of cardboard. I mean, they would fall down in two seconds. They're cold, fortunately. It doesn't get super cold outside of Lima. There's an 80% unemployment rate. The water is brought in by truck, I'll say more about that. And very often, the RPR is the only source of income. Now, here's a description from a volunteer from Australia says, here in Pamplona, there is no electricity, and water must be brought in by trucks. Unfortunately, because the roads are so steep and narrow, because remember, they're on the hills, they're on the mountains. OK. The people who live in Upper Pamplona must carry tanks up to their homes. These are big tanks. I've seen them do it. <laughs> Even women who are pregnant. It also takes over an hour to wait for <coughs> a medical post. I can see children digging through the rubbish. This is true. Searching for a kilo of aluminum cans in order to try and earn one sole, a well, sole is about 35 cents. This may take all day. Many of the children have skin diseases and stomach problems and most of them have chest, throat, and nose infections and allergies due to the dusty, intoxicated air. There's this saying that if you drop a spoon in Pamplona Alta, it will just disappear into the sand. So it's just <coughs> constant. And it's funny, you can even see it when you're far away. You just see this dust you know, coming up So. Women came. There were already some people there, but they're met with a lot of distrust, particularly in the city of Lima. They really don't want them around, and so they got to do something. So the first thing they did was set up community dining rooms or community kitchens. Okay, and then as they're cooking together, they started developing mothers' groups. They started <laughs> developing, you know, market little marketplaces. And in the late '70s, there was a group of about ten women who were always sewing and knitting. And there's an awful lot of handy grant in Peru. I mean, this still goes on. And they were trying to sell these handmade articles to tourists and you know people from Lima, not doing very well. And this woman who used to come um, from Lima, she taught at some, a place called the Humboldt School, had gone to, had been sent from Chile, three Chilean RPRs that looked more like these. And she said to them, why don't you try these? Now, let, let's see if we can market them, and she said, they were so frightened that the group began like therapy. Then a big order came in from the U.S., giving them the income and encouragement to continue making our peers. Now, interestingly, at first, they tended to depict the problems in the shantytown. So they would show like minor strikes and all these guys in and outside the mine. The long lines, there is one that's just, you know, long lines of children and their mothers at medical clinics numbers of children, because so many children die early and there's a, you know, the infant mortality rate is appalling, okay. And they also would show how women were getting together to, to confront these issues, that they'd have the women sitting around. But very, very quickly they learned this wasn't going to sell. So that's why they moved, and most of the RPOs that I saw, other than in museums, where they do show the protest ones, are this this nicer nicer variety, okay. There can be up to 50 women in a group. They split the income evenly. Each sale brings about $5 to $25 to the group. Um, each woman makes about $1.50 a day. They market here, if you can find them, between $50 to $120. So somebody's making money off of these. I'm not sure it's the women. Um, and they work very hard. There's one woman who said she gets up at six, she w- fetches the water, remember you gotta walk to get your water, she cleans the house, she walks to the bakery to buy bread, she gets her kids up, she fixes them eggs, she gets them off to school, and they can walk miles to go to school. I saw children in little adorable little uniforms taking you know, buses and I'd say, well how far is this going? And they'd say, it's an hour away. You know, it's just really hard for these kids to get an education so then she's you know at eight o'clock she's working from eight to eleven and she goes home she makes lunch kids do not come home from lunch if they're that far away and then she'll go back at two and work until eight or nine at night that's a long day so all right and then they're marketed by different groups many of which are women's groups um, that are based in lima and also another shanty town in which there are a lot of women who are there as political refugees in the workshops, the women usually talk about the themes they want to convey. All right, and while many of them would like to sort of let the world know that things are not super, super duper in these areas, a lot of them portray what they want, what they want life to be like. See, there's a lot of you know animals, all the, There's a lot of you know veggies. Um, or you know, if you look at the um, nativity one, you know, this just really you know, beautiful background and, you know, everybody's happy. And one of the women said, you know, we're encouraged to sort of work our dreams into it. She said, I had never thought about my dreams because no one ever asked me about my dreams, you know. So this is sort of a way of getting it out there, okay. Um, Another um, quote says, the actual manual labor of producing quilts allows these women to express experiences that are difficult or impossible to communicate with words. It permits them to cross language and cultural barriers with people from other cultures and languages. The process of making textile art gives women time to themselves, allowing them to shed pain with their stitches. You knit at your own rhythm, or you sew at your own rhythm, or the rhythm of your group. It is therapeutic to be able to express feelings in cultures where pain and suffering is not much spoken of. Many cultures don't openly express personal or social suffering, and pain is considered a private matter. In Peru, it is relatively private. You do not share all personal things with everyone. The RPR thus becomes a vehicle of expression in a public way, helping the makers to go on with living in their often dire circumstances. And I really did find that to be true, particularly with the indigenous peoples. They don't emote a lot. They really are very stoic. So, and you know, if you've ever done can say I guess most of you haven't, if you've ever worked with your hands, it really is therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> One woman said, the more we work, the more creativity we find in ourselves. In the beginning, I never thought the RPRs would help me in my life. But this is an art that has no ending. We are always trying to renew our ideas. We are very proud that our pieces are appreciated and sold. The fact that they are exported is a big compensation. It animates us. We all have a little art in our minds and in our hands. We will leave something as a legacy for society. It will stay behind us in another place in another time. And another really nice reaction was from a woman who was a third-year graduate student at Theological Union. She said, I'm looking <coughs> for God and finding God right here in Pamplona Alto. These women highlight the key aspects of what good work is all about community, faith, simplicity, and the ability to create beauty in a powerful way. They are co-creators with God. Now, I really love that concept, but I think it doesn't take us far. It's great to be a co-creator with God, but you gotta eat and you gotta be able to feed your kids. Okay, so as I said, Pamplona Alta is a very, very (coughs) poor area, but Peru, as a country, still lags behind much of the rest of the world. 19% 19% of the population lives on less than a dollar a day. Okay? 51% live in chronic poverty. The mortality rate for children is, is 32 per 1000 births, which is high. 7% of children under 5 are underweight. 26% of children are malnourished, and 35% of the population is below the minimum level of dietary edu- energy consumption. You know, which is basically you know, what do you need to leave, like, you know, 1,200 calories to survive? 35% of people <coughs> in the group are getting that. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on iTunes.villanova.edu.